This here's UnkView.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of UnkView. Today, we are joined, as always, by my nephew, Brendan Lemon, and a special guest, a friend of his named William Batit III, who I've heard so much about from Brendan and uh, honored to have him on the podcast today. We're going to be learning a lot about him, what he's doing. He actually is currently living in Europe and has a very interesting backstory and background. So as usual, we don't plan anything. So this is probably going to be either a train wreck or a car accident. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see which it is. But, but I wanted to welcome you, William, to the show. Do you prefer to be called William or Bill or what? Uh, uh, William or Bill, whichever one is easier for you. Okay, thanks, Keith. Anyway, um, <laughs> why don't you uh, why don't you tell uh, our listeners? I'm sorry, I exaggerated. Why don't you tell our listener um, <laughs> a little bit about yourself, your backstory as it relates to how you know my nephew? Okay, awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited. I've heard so much about you, and I've heard so much about this podcast. I'm really excited to be a part of it. Um, so I'm originally from the UK, uh, but I moved to Hong Kong when I was six. So I lost my accent. I met Brendan when I was in law school in Chicago. We were both trying to be stand-up comedians. We both still are. And, um, we both didn't like each other initially. We both were like, <laughs> I don't like that guy. You know, he, he has a lot of opinions and is similar to me, but then we slowly became pariahs for the same reason that we didn't like each other. And then, uh, joined forces to do a lot of cool stuff. We have done stand up in Scotland together. I'm in France actually right now per his, his recommendation because he was like, well, you need to go to a place where you can't get what you want. And when you're in New York, you know, you can basically go get whatever you want at whatever time. And France closes whether or not you like it. And I'm experiencing that a lot right <laughs> yeah, in now. spades uh, yeah the most exaggerated version of what brendan was talking about i've experienced for the last like eight weeks but it's been a really great experience and i you know uh, we wrote a book together uh, the power bible and that was a really awesome time and he's kind of been my my sensei as i call him wow well I, th that's some interesting stuff and some of that i didn't know and i don't know if you know uh, william but you know we've actually talked about you a couple times on the podcast in fact brendan told me the story about how you ended up in France because of his recommendation. And I found that that story as he told it fascinating because it was, and I don't wanna, I'm probably gonna screw this up, Brennan, correct me if I do, but the gist of it was to go somewhere where you couldn't rely on your primary tool for survival, which is communication. And then having to come up with different ways just to get stuff done and how that would impact actually who you are or who you can become as a person. Is that sort of consistent. A million percent. I was kind of reading a lot of the philosophers that Brennan was telling me about, like Baudrillard and Deleuze. We had both gone to Cannes to pitch separate TV shows. And when I was there, I was just having a terrible time because I just couldn't get food at any time. I was so frustrated. And it's just so funny that like I choose to move back here willingly after having <laughs> basically spent the entire time complaining to Brendan about like this is in New York I can't wait to get back to New York and then um, and then a whole and country shuts down. My life. <laughs> yeah, and and this lockdown has been kind of a really great experience um, for me in a way in which I haven't didn't really expect. Um, it's given me an appreciation for freedom that I didn't have before. Uh, I so I, this year I've been kind of going on this kind of path of like self ritual, and I'd wanted to do something. I'm half African American, and I wanted to kind of have a. a a day where I commemorate like the my 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 faceless ancestors, the hundreds of them that like just never experienced freedom, 
And, you know, we, we talk about it, but then whenever they did the lockdown here, we have drones that check whether or not um, we're out for more than an hour. We have, uh, there's 100,000 police officers that, that have been dispatched throughout the country. I've seen them hassle everybody. You have to fill out a form, you have to write your place of birth. And so it felt really, really intense. And for the first time in my life, I really felt the loss of freedom and what that kind of felt like and the ability to not kind of do what I wanted to do. And that gave, that's given me more of an appreciation for it. And then also when you're isolated, you, it kind of is a mirror to your soul, right? And, you know, I have no, I, I don't have anybody that I can talk to out here. And the time difference, I basically was just spending so much time alone that I was able to confront a lot of um, specters that had been kind of bothering me over the last couple of years in a way in which that maybe I had pushed aside when I was living in New York or having other distractions. That's really fascinating. And Brendan, you'll, you'll, you'll uh, echo this because we talked about that specifically when we were talking about the fact that you suggested that William go to France and you made this comment not specific to him, I don't think. I think you were just talking mm -hmm. generically. But I think one of the things you said was it does exactly what William just said. It forces you to confront whatever you got to confront because you're just there on your own. And, you know, William, you are like, I checked you out on Facebook just, be, you know, just because I like I linked to you in our show page when we talked about you, like you are an, an a stunningly good looking guy. Oh, and thank you. I'm not gay, <laughs> but you, you actually might make me think a little about it. Um, <laughs> that, oh, so, if I could blush, I would blush. <laughs> <laughs> just made, well, I, I mentioned that me. not to not to cast further aspersions on myself because Lord knows there's plenty of those already, but just because I would think that you might connect with people kind of easily, even in a foreign country, has that not been the case for you? It was interesting. It, the problem is, is that I've been able to have like superficial relationships with people where, you know, it's like pleasantries. And I, I honestly, people in the South of France are actually really nice, but there is a limitation that where I was when I got here so bad at French, French that you have, everyone thinks that you can just like talk your way through it, but there becomes a point where you're too frustrating for a native listener to listen to. And so you, the conversations end up being very superficial and short. And then I talked to Brendan about this when I was in my language class, I was a loser in my class for some reason. Um, nobody liked me. And so I was like, I was like telling him, I was like, why is it? I'm like, you know, the, I don't get why the people in this class are like kind of like being closed off when I'm trying to be friendly. So it was a weird experience where I did feel kind of isolated whenever I got here. And whenever I did start making friends in the city, that's when the lockdown kind of happened. Ah. Uh, so, Brendan, what was your you and I have never discussed this. And I, I don't mean to go off on this tangent, William, but I'm just curious. So what, how Brendan will answer this. You and I have never talked about what it was like for you when you went to France. And for those of you who haven't heard the story, the super short version of it, which I still just, it's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard, is Brendan decided he wanted to work at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. And to me, like the the first requirement of being able to do that would be to be fluent in French. French. Right. And Brendan was not, to my knowledge, fluent in French at the time. So I still don't have any idea how you pulled that off. But the point is, you did, you did end up getting that job you did go and live in Paris for, I don't recall how long, six months or something. Then yep. you went back and lived there again later. How, what was it like for you to go through the, the same process that Williams, I guess, is still going through? The answer is exactly what Bill described, basically. It's exactly the same. It's, it's funny as you're left with different excuses. I think that was the thing that hit me is like you, if you are frustrated or if something is bothering you in your normal life in the States, 
you have certain excuses that you can continue to use. But when you go to a different place and things are different, you can't use that anymore. And your brain is almost like can't can't fall back on, oh, it's just because I'm X, Y, Z or something. And it just those different experiences put you in a different place and you have to kind of work through it. And, I, I, you know, honestly, I think the thing that Bill and I have in common is we're very good at communicating and have used language to solve a lot of the problems we've had in our life. And that just can't happen when it's literally in a different language. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So, Bill, back to your situation. How long have you been in, in, in France? Uh, since January. So now five uh, five months. Five months. And and the lockdown there started when? March 14. I think we we were basically everything was almost like completely locked down. And then March 17th, um, it became illegal to go outside. So basically half the time you've been there, it's been under lockdown. Yes. And what you said earlier about your your loss of freedom, I found that really interesting because like I didn't know, for example, you said that they have drones that are monitoring your yes. people and the, that the fact that the police are hassling people. So but what's that been like for you? So the first kind of week I was vlogging my experience and I was carrying around kind of like a decoy bag of groceries to avoid the police. And then just seeing the police where I thought at first it's like, oh, kind of like this casual like lockdown thing to then seeing it be more and more serious. The first experience that I had where I was like, oh, my God, this is serious. I saw five cops roll up on a couple for holding hands at the beach and walking around too leisurely. And this was like day two of the lockdown. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then whenever I was doing these and I was getting these shots, because these are once in a lifetime shots, like of, com- of a completely empty streets of Nice in, in, in the summertime. And then seeing like this old couple, the, the police officers are like, yo, where are you going? Are you guys going to get groceries? You ne- guys need to be going back right now. And then at the same time, seeing for weeks that it wasn't work or it didn't feel like it was working because the lockdown started and then the numbers started getting really crazy. And I was like, I watched it because my dad initially called me and he was like, you need to come home. You need to come home now. And he was like, they they don't have a place to put the bodies in Italy. And I'm like less than 26 miles away from northern Italy. So I understood. Yeah, I understood his fear. But at the same time, I was like, look. I, I don't think me traveling back is going to be a good idea. In two weeks, everything's going to be fine. I'm not going to be exposed to anybody. Then I saw two weeks turn into four weeks. And then the time that hurt the most was on April um, 10th when they announced that they're extending it to May 11th. And because I thought they were just going to have it out to April 30th. And that kind of really shook me. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be in this room for this amount of time. And I kind of went through various different stages. At first I was being very, very productive. Um, I had like my got done list, I was getting a bunch of tasks done, but then slowly I kind of faded into a place where I was just like, just waking up, eating a pizza and just doing the bare minimum to keep sane. And I watched myself kind of look worse. My face started getting bloated. My, um, I just started feeling weird in a very strange way but then it kind of hit its stride and I got used to just being in this room as the new normal and I kind of stopped feeling bad for myself that was a big part too where I was like at first I was like oh there's all these other things I wanted to be doing I'm like dude there are people fucking dying you know there are people having their whole families like decimated and so that kind of made me feel better about it but yeah the whole idea of being watched the whole idea of making sure my form was filled out correctly and then the there was an instance where they started making you put your place of birth on the form and that kind of scared me Oh, is that what you thought they might do with that information? I had no idea why they had it. 
I was like, why is place of birth pertinent? I can understand like age, name, all this other stuff. But whenever you, you're writing place of birth, it's it sounds like a, a wartime kind of thing where they're like, we're only taking care of our own kind of mentality. That was what yeah. I was also afraid of was like, am I even going to be able to get health care if I, if I do turn out to be sick? Is that why I'm having to put something like this down? So all these were like considerations. But then now I'm actually really glad I stayed because now we have like, I think yesterday we only have 100 new cases in the entire country. So it's brought, been brought all the way down. And I think that they are basically mirroring G- Germany's plan to basically reintegrate and kind of have a life reach a new normal where are you living? Are you did you did you say you're living in a single small room? I'm just living in a studio um, apartment, and it was like an Airbnb that I had to kind of re-extend multiple times because of I had to cancel my other ones because they were, they shut down the train. And where are your parents? Um, right now they're in Houston, Texas. When we moved from Hong Kong, we moved to Texas in about 2001. So wow, your story is so interesting in terms of all the places you've lived. Like, what do you what do you think of yourself as? Do you think of yourself as an American? Every time I leave America, I'm remind I I'm reminded that I'm very very American by by <laughs> girls I go on dates with. This is <laughs> by just people. They're, they're like, you're so American, and it's really it's really hard to see yourself as feeling really American in America because everybody's American. I feel American, and I love. I love America. I think it's it's the best. I think America gets a lot of undeserved heat um, sometimes. It's funny. That's exactly the same revelation I had, which is part of the reason I loved living in France is that you feel so American when yes. you're over in Europe. And just the way the other just the cultural differences, like in the little folk ways of like the things that Europeans do that you're like, this would never like people in America would find this so bizarre. <laughs> like that million percent or even just like decibel level like we're just loud i think it's a really easy way to be proud of being an american is to is to leave oh yeah well and it's interesting too because you know you and i have never had any communication at all until this conversation and i didn't know you know i really i don't know anything about what you're really like personal what your you know your philosophical perspectives are what your political leanings might be you know i have this image in my mind of people in your and Brendan's age demographic. I was a little surprised when you said, I love America. I mean, because there's so many people I perceive right or wrong, and I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, you know, I'd love I'd love to be corrected because this isn't something I, I like thinking. But it's just like there's so many people in your basic age demographic who have like a fuck America attitude. And because my view of it is, one, America is not perfect. No country is, in my estimation. But I just think of exactly as you said, Bill, the freedoms we have here are, I think, compared to some places, extraordinary. And freedom of expression and freedom of speech and all those things that I think so many people here take for granted that yes. that just don't necessarily exist, at least not to the same level as we have here. So I, I was I found that refreshing that you think that that I wasn't expecting that. Well, well thank you for that. And honestly, it, it's you're you're not wrong to assume that. I remember a a couple of years ago I posted on Facebook that I love America and it was uh in all caps and people came people at me freaked you know? out. People yeah. freaked out on all my comments, you know, and we're saying all this stuff. And like one of the issues that I've had is, you know, being African American and Indian and then a lot of the girls I date are liberal. I'm not more conservative than them. I just for me I just think I've been to countries where things don't work, where corruption is 
out in the open where there is legislated, my mom's from Malaysia, and there's legislated affirmative action for the majority. They have a limited slots for Indians to actually get in anything. They're, so they're like, there cannot be more than 8% Indians or, or for a certain title, and there must be 80% Malay. I think a lot of times we are kind of borrowing narratives from my grandfather's generation or my dad's generation and trying to apply them to the modern day. And I think that's creating a real schism in the political sphere because I don't think people are actually talking about reality anymore. You know, whenever people say there's been no progress made on social liberties or civil rights in, in since, since Jim Crow, that is just patently false. But that's something that is being basically promulgated through liberal circles. And people are saying these things and they're not really giving credit, number one, the work that's been made and so that we can actually work on the problems that are actually afflicting us instead of kind of coming up with ghost problems. Like th this entire conversation was worth it. <laughs> just to hear what you, like that was, dude, that was really, really awesome what you just said. It really was. Like, and it's hilarious because again, not knowing you at all, I did not expect that I would come to the conclusion I just reached, which is you're more conservative than Brendan is. <laughs> no, you are. This is, I'm not being facetious. I mean, it's clear to me that you are. Yeah, well, it's funny because like Brennan and I, when we when we first met, we actually got into a a big argument um, um before we both we were both getting ready to perform at this place called Patsy's, and it was on whether or not white privilege exists. And Brennan was like, he he didn't believe it existed. I said it did, and and <laughs> that conversation we got really heated. Right. And then both of us kind of had a flipping where it was Brennan said something to me that really stuck with me. He was like, look, like, I just don't like that. There has kind of been this pursuit to be the most victimized in the situation. And I feel like the concept of white privilege kind of embodies a lot of that. And there's a thing that I came to realize where I was like, if we keep calling something as nebulous as white privilege, we're not actually going to break down what exactly is, are the privileges in that so we can work on the actual issues, right? So it's like a really unproductive statement. And it's kind of a blanket statement to apply to things that might not even be the case, right? I think race is an imprecise tool, and I think it's, it's not being useful anymore. And so when we prescribe behaviors to certain races, it just... It number one, it no longer makes you responsible for your actions, and you can no longer see, yeah, like their white people have been through a really hard time, right? And their black people have been through a really hard time. For me personally, I think that like there should be affirmative action, but it should just simply just be need based, right? It, I shouldn't be benefiting off of affirmative action. My dad has a juris doctorate, I went to private schools my whole life. I'm not the person that needs that leg up. What you're looking for is a diverse culture at schools, and I think culture coalesce around poverty or different classes in society. Poor people are disadvantaged kind of regardless of color. We need to do things to basically make more harmony and not make race the focal issue. I was talking to Brendan about how one of my one of our friends brought up how Obama didn't do enough for the black community. And I said, "What the fuck is the black community?" Yeah, who is the black who are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, who are you talking about? I was like there's no policy that you're going to put in place that's going to help out you, me, my dad, my sisters, because there, there's so many different issues that we're all facing. So why are we all building one group? It doesn't make any sense. I think that language is a big issue in the political sphere right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, so much of what you just said right there was just really, really great stuff. Very insightful, very intelligent, very perceptive, very objective. And I think it's funny, Brendan, how often do we end up in this basic conversation right here? And it's not like we're trying to, 
But it just seems like this is such a problem that we have in the world today in terms of there's a lack of objectivity. There's a lack mm. of even of even pretending to be objective. It's just I'm going to scream the stuff that my side screams at your side. Yeah. And then you're, you're going to scream the stuff that your side screams at my side. No, it's, none of it's really rooted in, in reality anymore. When the masses have run so far outside the lines of what I would call even attempting to have a real conversation, what do you do with that? What's your, what's your answer to that, William? Well, I think, I think we need to stop commodifying victimization on both sides. So I think both sides feel like they're the victim and we, we kind of, we kind of basically have given medals out for how victimized you feel or claim you are. Right. And I think on, because the thing is, this is a, kind of a badge of the left. And I create the, the, the distinction between a Trump supporter and a supporter of Trump. I dated this girl and her dad was really nice to me and all of these other things. And then only later I did find out that he, he, he was a supporter of Trump, but it was for his like fiscal policy. But then there's a plurality of individuals. Everybody groups into that group. And I think that also kind of obscures the discussion where if you can't see any merit of the other side because you're basically straw manning their position, I think that that basically creates a narrative where you can't meet in the middle. So it's like if I believe that every person who supports Trump is a racist, a bigot, a, a misogynist and all of that stuff, then there's no reason for me to set the table with him. But if we create more lines of distinction, like, look, this person is voting for Trump because basically it meets their own particular interests and they don't necessarily support everything he does, then we can find more common ground. But back to the victimization thing is it on it, people are talking about like, oh, we have fewer opportunities for whites, there's white genocide, all of these things. That's also a victim narrative. Right. And if we stop giving into people's victim narratives on both sides and basically saying, like, look, there's not really commodity in being victimized and also kind of show people where their own behavior might be the consequence of their problem. Right. For a lot of people, it's a lack of taking their own personal responsibility. Yeah. Yep. A, a big watershed moment in terms of us, our kind of ongoing discussion that Bill and I have is like watching Jordan Peterson talk about personal responsibility and just being like, holy shit, man, he's so right. Like he just just wake just wake up in the morning and go tr out in the world and try to take care of yourself first. It's not ev it's not the world's responsibility to try to pave the road for you. I think that Bill and I both shared this kind of reaction to it, which is like we've both had to do that in our lives before at different points. It's weird because it's almost like at a certain point I suddenly had to go like, wow, shit, I need to take care of myself. And that's when my life started getting better. That's when I started taking responsibility and trying to do things. And, and it's a daily process. The thing that Bill and I, I think, really ratcheted the conversation up between the two of us was the fact that that message seems so simple and fundamental. And for some reason, that dude just gets attacked left and right, man. He just and people will attack him in the media for things that he's not even doing or saying. Like for some reason, him just saying, hey, look, take responsibility for yourself causes, you know, people on the news and the CBC to like yell at him and tell him that he's he's speaking to alt right people. And he's a uh, you know, why, how come so many men follow you and all this sort of shit? Part of the reason we come back to this over and over again, Uncle Mike, I think, is that there is some weird under the hood background programming that we're all kind of living through in the United States and kind of the West in general, that we're running into it as we continue to have these conversations that there's this impetus to not have to take responsibility for yourself in some way. And, and I, number one, I 100% agree with a lot of what you just said. And I want to say that I think more we more often than ever before are kind of shown narratives of what we feel like are injustice or unfairness. 
And it was shown with monkeys that if you give one monkey like two grapes and give the other monkey one grape for doing the same task, that almost immediately the monkey that's getting one grape will stop doing that task if you can see the other monkey getting two grapes. So I think there's a concept of fairness that's built so deep into primates that is being exploited by the media on all sides, right? Where everybody feels like their injustice is being done onto them, which makes them not want to take responsibility and make them point the finger mm, at them. Mm, that's huge, man. Yeah, I think yeah, that's really, a, I think that's really interesting, something. that observation. And I, But I also want to just say something that sort of covers you know, or relates to a, a lot of what both of you just said, and, and and what both of you just said was excellent. I say often, I said it on the last podcast, that I think that, like, CNN is nothing more than a narrative dispensary. And in the same breath, I say, and so is Fox News. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. they, they are show after show after show. It starts not with the reporting of news, but with the delivery of or a reinforcement of a narrative. Mm-hmm. And it's like to me, it's so it's just insanely obvious because they're not reporting a news story. They'll say something like, well, uh, crazy ass Biden's at it again. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, that's <laughs> not I'm, I'm, news. Uh, number one, it's I think one of the biggest issues is, is that and Brendan brings this up all the time is everybody is searching for their valid their their narratives to be validated rather than testing their basically their their concepts and stories about how the world works exactly. with, with facts that might might work against it and that's the biggest issue with ideologues right is ideologues and this happens on the left as well I, you know brendan knows my ex-girlfriend we would just get in huge arguments because she would be on the, she's so far on the left that sometimes pragmatism doesn't play into it she was talking about like we shouldn't have borders with Mexico. And I'm like, dude, they have 50,000 murders a year. We have to have borders with Mexico. They, they, <laughs> yeah. I, I said, and she was like, she was like, you know, and it's, it, what's, what's interesting is, is like on the left, people relate to their, their p- political position as being representative of who they are. So like basically it takes away their moral responsibility because in, in the subtext in our argument was like, you know, I was kind of being racist, but it's like, look, I have tons of Mexican friends and you grew up in a Southern state and you have no Mexican friends. You know what I'm saying? And there's, so there's like this this distortion between you can believe something, but it's also your actions are being carried out in a different way. But to tie it back to the validation of our own realities, yeah, we get in this feedback loop of having our reality validated. And when we hear information against it, it feels like it's attacking us at our core because we haven't had basically evidence against it in so long that we think like this is sacrilege to disagree with us. And there's actually this really cool um, media bias chart thing that I thought was really interesting, where it just like, if you want to get real news, go, go to Reuters or like Bloomberg or something, like where, where the news buys its news from. And then you just get the facts and you can just do what you want with that rather than kind of get what you're supposed to think about some of the fact. And a lot of people are just parroting things that they've heard from other people and they don't don't really question why they have those thoughts. And one of the things that Jordan B. Peterson said that really resonated with me is he said, stop saying things that make you weak. And he said, anytime that you're saying something that isn't actually you, that you haven't actually thought about, stop saying it, you know, and or say the maybe the worst position and be found out that you're wrong. We're losing that common ground. And I think because no one trusts the opposing side's media, like our friend Clay said that he misses the days where there was at least gatekeepers, even if there was bias in the media, even if the media was crooked, at least people could agree on some facts. But that's now gone. No one agrees on each other's facts anymore. I think that what Bill is saying in terms of people look for the validation of their narrative, even if that 
that continues a narrative that isn't really serving them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you think you're a victim, it doesn't help you have a better life if you continue finding evidence that you're a victim. It, it none of that gets you out of whatever position of victimhood you're in, but yet yep. you're continue you will you will continue to look for that kind of narrative and and it it actually helps ruin your life. But like part of the reason I think Trump was elected was because he validated everybody's narrative. Mm-hmm. There's so many people who were like, oh, Trump can't get elected. This is a racist, horrible country. This is a country for the rich. It's only for it's all of these terrible things of victimhood and oppression and all of these things. And and it and it's not even to say if whether or not those narratives are accurate. Like some of them could be, but the fact that Trump to them represented that he had to get elected because it verified all of these narratives for everybody. If you on every side of the spectrum, not just on people who thought, you know, who think this is a racist or oppressive country, just to be clear. I mean, I feel like he potentially validated everybody's narrative. And that's why in an S in in a sense, he had to be elected. Well, yeah. And I also think that the the Democrats get too caught up with trying to please Twitter. Right. That they that they think that Twitter is representative of their base. And like uh, so Brendan and I recorded a podcast that um right after trump was elected but like the thing is is that there was no appeal by by hillary clinton to to these states where there are a lot of people who have not been positively affected or feel like they're doing worse right and they they feel like they're not getting the the basically not getting what they were supposed to out of the american experience and they don't see themselves in the future of america they don't feel themselves being spoken to at all and when a lot of times you want to feel spoken to in a political message in order for you to want to go out and vote for that candidate. And I think that that is something that the left is continuing to leave out. And we, we, we do it by calling states like Michigan, Minnesota, all, all these states like flyover states, right? Where we diminish their importance or like what they need to understand is blah, 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 this, instead of understanding why people, rather than seeking to understand, they're telling people why they are the way they are and that they are pathologically bad and that they need to change. And for me, I don't think it's, a, it's so much of a discussion of racism as a binary, right? I think of it as more of a bell curve. I lived in, I lived in Texas and I went to college in ba- at Baylor, you know, where they hung a uh, news after Obama was elected. And I never felt like you, the crazy thing was I, I had moments where people were maybe insensitive about race, but I didn't have the racist moments my dad or my grandfather had. And this was the deep South. Right. Um, where they, they, there was a lynching like less than 100 years ago. And now they're building a stat. They built a statue of our our black quarterback who won the Heisman, Robert Griffin, the third. So there's definitely being progress made. It's just that nobody is acknowledging it on the left. And that's not fo- making us focus on the real problems. Like for Black Lives Matter, I think the big issue is that they number one, I don't think that the people who started the movement or took over the movement spoke with enough nuance. So whenever people are saying things like all lives matter, what they should have said is, look, look, all lives do matter. Black people are disproportionately affected. But here's the thing, everybody's getting shot by the cops. They try to invalidate the experience of all other races getting shot by cops, and that made that made them less effective because that narrative isn't for everybody. And it's true, cops have been shooting a lot of people of every background, and we have more police shootings of every race than any other country. If they had broadened their message to say that we are the canary in the coal mine for the country, they would have been a lot more effective. But what we wanted to do was we wanted to personalize our victimization in our thing and make it that it's only ours. And that makes you just less effective as a whole. That's why Malcolm X was a less effective leader than Martin Luther King. 
And because we don't have any unifying messages, we don't have any bigger tribe building messages on how we're all unified in a similar struggle. Again, that's just a really series of brilliant observations and, and commentaries. And to me, the whole issue of racism, and, and I'm a lot older than the two of you are, I'm almost twice your age. Uh, in fact, I'm exactly twice your age. And so my perspective is different just because of that. And what I've seen in my lifetime is I was born at a time when the the whole lynchings in the South stuff was still recent enough history that, you know, even as a kid, I was aware of it. And what I've seen in the course of my lifetime is, and again, this is just my my own personal perspective, but I really think it's accurate. It's been remarkable. It has been mm-hmm. incredible what I've seen just in my life. And I grew up in a very small, isolated town in Indiana, which was, you know, very backwards and unsophisticated culturally. And I say that only because it's the kind of context in which racism could very easily exist and not be thought thought poorly of. And yet I never really saw it. And granted, I lived in a in a community that was basically, you know, had a very, very small minority percentage, almost zero. But the point is, I lived in that environment for, uh, you know, for for 10 or 12 years. And, you know, there just there just really wasn't racism. People didn't talk about other races. They just lived their lives. And then as as time has passed, you know, what I've seen has just been amazing in terms of the fact that Obama was elected and just so many other things in terms of how uh, the celebrity of uh, it, it, the, the worlds of entertainment and sport, in terms of how many specifically African-Americans have become legends and icons and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Henry Aaron. And I could go on and on and on in terms of people who are you know really thought of in very, very positive ways, the role models, their heroes. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this last dance thing that ESPN released recently. Oh, yeah. Which it's amazing. Some of the best TV I've ever watched. I, I, I'm not aware of that. What is that? Are you serious? Yeah, I, mean, I really don't. I really don't well, know. You tell them. So it's basically they, they, got, they got a bunch of footage from Michael Jordan's last season, and they're building this narrative of Michael Jordan and the Bulls going for their sixth championship. And basically you see, like, it begins with Michael Jordan being in Paris. And I think I talked to you about this, about how he's getting swarmed by fans in, Par- in Paris. And, like, you know, this is the 90s. Like, no one gives a shit about basketball, but he made it. He popularized it all over the world. And you basically see how, see how it was a worldwide phenomena and everybody was so excited. And that's the beauty of sports, right, is, you know, th- they say that we, we distinguish based on clothing before race. Right. So if someone's wearing the same jersey as us or the wearing the same the same clothing as us. We we see them as part of our tribe way before race stuff. That's our brain. And then this happens on a, a biological level it has to do with eye movement. And the thing is, is that we don't spend enough time team building on that next level. And I 100 percent think you're right. Like, you know, there's been an immense amount of progress and are things perfect? No, but we we need to acknowledge the progress that's been made. And then then we can kind of focus on some of the nuances. But like the the left is basically they've tried to appropriate my grandfather's plight. You know, they're trying to be like, and it's not the same. It's not the same. My grandfather served this country in two fucking wars, came back and was embarrassed in front of his kids in Alabama and had to pick out the hotels he could stay out in advance so that they wouldn't be stuck out on the uh, on, on the side of the road or end up a long time, um, huge spaces away from being at a black color hotel. That was the reality. And that's like no longer the reality. And the country has made big progress, but the problem is in the media and especially MSNBC and all these other things, they're further radicalizing people and they're making people feel more and more like victims. I remember 
I used to think that girls didn't want to date me because I was black and Indian. When it was actually, I had a bad personality and did a lot of weird stuff and had weird fashion and I didn't socialize well, but it not it didn't actually make me reflective on the things that were causing my suffering. I just mm. attributed it to something that I couldn't control, which was my race. And it led for me being lonely for far longer than I should have been because I wasn't willing to take for further responsibility for my own life and my wow. life. That's really cool. That's really cool. That's that's awesome. But you're and you're so right. And, and just to finish the point I was making is that you know, on a, I don't know how to, I don't know how to articulate this quite right, but you know, it's like on a scale of zero to a hundred with a hundred being America's the most racist country in the history of ever. You know, I think at one time we were probably, you know, like an 80, but today I honestly think we're more like a 20. And I think that's just massive, massive. You know, I live in one, I live in, in a really, really diverse place. Like the gym that I, that I go to or will go to once it reopens. I go to two, Lifetime Fitness, if you're familiar with that. Oh, you know, yeah, great gym. It's yeah, like a so, <laughs> country club. <laughs> so country I, um, club. <laughs> I, go to, uh, I go to one of two that are almost exactly the same distance from where I live. And one of them, I'll say, one of them is about halfway between me and uh, a city called Dearborn. And Dearborn, Michigan, if you've, if you've ever heard this, has the largest Arabic population in the world outside of the Middle East. Wow, I did and, not know that. Yeah, and I mean, you knew that, Brennan, right? Yeah, I mean, this is it's one of the reasons I think I've had a unique experience growing up is that oh, yeah. I grew up in that community, and it's like there are in just in the city of Plymouth and Canton, there's one mosque, there's a Sikh temple, a Hindu temple, there's a ton of different Protestant and Catholic churches, there's a Jewish temple. It, there is a ton of different types of people, and they've and I've kind of always been around all of them. So it's it is a, a non-typical American community in that regard. Right. And and the, and the reason I mention that is because the gym that is seven miles to my south is in the direction of that town Dearborn that has that huge Arabic population. So that gym is literally probably 40, 30, 40% Arabic. And then the other gym I go to is seven miles north, and there's almost no Arabic people there, but there's a, a huge contingent of uh, Asians. Yeah. And, and, and believe it or not, like even some like Russian. And I mean, it's just an amazingly diverse community in which I live. And I say all of that simply because you know, this is the kind of place where if there was a lot of racial tension, I'd be feeling it constantly. Mm -hmm. be there really was almost no racial tension whatsoever in either of those gyms until Obama got elected. And it wasn't his election that caused it. It was just the social trends that started happening after that in terms of it felt like there was this this really big uptick in the narrative about discrimination. Like suddenly mm -hmm. it, the issue had died. The, the issue was no longer an issue in, in my life. And then suddenly it was just talked about all the time. Mm. And then, you know, all the stuff happened with police shootings in terms of cops being killed and all that. I, I was just shocked at how quickly things changed to the point where I would go to those same gyms. And suddenly people who were very friendly and talking to strangers all the time, you know, just very, very it's a very friendly place. Suddenly it became chilly. Mm. When I was a kid, I don't remember. And even when I was in diversity council and 
you know, involved with, you know, di- diversity and sort of multi-ethnic, multicultural stuff in high school and even into college, I don't think I even thought about racial divisions or cultural ethnic divisions or anything like that. I didn't think about that even that much then. And I think that there, right. there is a real detriment to a hyper focus on it. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back on my own experience. I did not think of it nearly in the same way. Honestly, even in college, up until towards the end, which I started college in 2008, and then 2011, 2012, there started to be more of a narrative of kind of like, oh, yeah, like, you know, like things are hard. But it wasn't anything that it, close to what it became in 2016. When right. I met Brendan, it was it was it was fever pitch. Like every everybody every conversation is layered with with race this and race that. Oh and, yeah, and, che- and checking your privilege and just all this kind. Of, it was so weird. Every interaction with a new person became like a unspoken series of deferential behaviors that you had to you know do every time you met a new person, especially if they were of a different race. It became like an ouroboros. Like the snake started eating its own tail because. You know, you started reading all these stories about, you know, people who would say things like, you can't wear that kimono. You're a white person. And then the white person's like, I'm half Japanese, idiot. Like, like it just, yeah. it was so weird. Like, or what you it can't kind have of dreadlocks, came. you know, or you can't wear hoop earrings. All of these things are, and here's the thing is, you're, the big issue is this, is that you're claiming things that aren't even yours, right? Exactly. And, and so one of the biggest problems I have with being an American, why I'm going to raise my kids in the UK is because there's too much of a focus on racial identity and it, racial identity destroys ethnicity. It does because you, you have all the, the tons of different ethnic backgrounds coming to America, Polish, Russian, French, um, Irish, etc. And then it's all destroyed into white. Right. And then you have all these African, you have African-Americans and then African immigrants coming to America and all this other stuff. Now you're all just black. There's, there's not you're not a separate ethnicity. And that, I think, actually works against how we're, we're unique and special. And the thing about an ethnicity is, is that culture, you, you do participate in it. You don't participate in being black. And this is what I've noticed in um, black rhetoric, rhetoric I've noticed in kind of racist rhetoric, too, is there's this concept of misusing the word we. We have like 70 percent of the NBA. And it's like, look, like you had nothing to do with that. Like, yeah. I can't claim my sister's successes <laughs> as my own. Like, you know, my sister went to Wharton School of Business. I can't say we went to Wharton, even though we have the same blood yeah. and we look like <laughs> all that stuff. I can't claim our achievements. And then you have on um, um, racist trolls online, you know, Nicholas Tesla, Edison, we invented the thing. And it's like, you didn't do that. Like, you had no part in that, right? What right. have you done? And that, that's the, this, this kind of thing that we we're talking about before where there's this movement away from personal responsibility by attaching yourself to a brand that you actually don't even have any control over. And you don't have control over the optics of your race in the public sphere because the media is going to do yeah, whatever yeah. the fuck it wants. Nobody, nobody thinks that they can put on Nikes and run like Usain Bolt because he also wore Nikes. <laughs> a, a, a million percent. They can't write that they're Olympic gold medal winner because you have the same complexion as Usain Bolt, right? Or Michael Phelps. That just it's not how reality works. But we create this myth of connection, and it's not. It's it's just an illusion. And I think that's a big problem that we're having right now is that people are claiming things that they're not. But like another one of those social technologies is the concept of national identity that like someone in Mobile, Alabama could could not have less to do with somebody in, you know, New York City. Like Mm -hmm. the two the two types of people live completely different lives. But 
we we've wrapped up in this concept that like, hey, we're American, we should have this shared set of ideals. And you know what? It's actually worked. It served this country really, really well. There's a great line from I forget this that Steven Spielberg movie, A Bridge of Spies. That's it. Anyway, he just says, You and I are American. The only thing we agree on is the rule book. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's something really to that, but everybody is being fed this concept of like unfairness. And I think that there is something kind of unfair. Like there's, I think we all kind of feel it in one way or another that there's this feeling of like, well, how come Shake Shack gets a $20 million bailout from the this US government program, but like this b- bread store across the street who's been here for 20 years doesn't get, they're at the end of the list. Like it doesn't make any sense. I feel like this is the net effect of that kind of thing. Um, a lot. And it's also the net effect, the political disinterest that we have. We, we basically have what we have voted for, right? And people complain, I voted and it's like people saying they showed up to the gym once, right? I voted for the president and why is everything shitty? Because your alderman, your council, like one of the things, my biggest problem with the Colin Kaepernick thing was it was just, you were just making an issue without basically pointing it anywhere. If you were like, look, I'm taking a knee and here are the sheriffs that are letting police continue to serve that have been violent to black people. These are the judges who are letting cops who shoot black people off. There's a fucking plan there, right? But there, there's like no plan. And yeah, there's no just, there's no political action that's actually no. taking place. If you and take I, a knee as a symbol, that feels powerful and it feels like it's causing a lot of conversation. But like how much of that translated into, let's say, uh, I don't know, black people running for offices in the United States or attempting to consolidate a community to have some black ownership in the NFL, which arguably is more would have made a way bigger difference to, you know, to exactly. what's going on. And you, you hit the nail on the head when you said symbol, right? And this is particular in the black community. We're so obsessed with symbolic victories that we miss out on the, the actual strategy. It's it's Thurgood Marshall move the civil rights movement so far ahead by being a legal tactician. And and he did everything in a very particular way. And it's, it's sad that because he doesn't have the same moments that Martin Luther King has, we kind of don't talk about him in the same way. But Martin Luther King would have made even less progress. I mean, there wouldn't have been, really been a reason to do what Martin Luther King did if it wasn't for what Thurgood Marshall did on the back end. And we don't have enough people thinking strategically. We have a lot of people who are disinterested. Everybody's voicing their opinion and they conflate voicing their opinion and getting validation for it with actually trying to solve the problem. And so it's therapeutic rather than practical. Exactly. And we have also, and this is this, um, the rhetoric that I've noticed in, in minority pluralities is the system's fucked anyway. It's already against me, this fatalistic attitude. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, the reason why it's fucked is that you don't take the time us all collectively young people didn't show up for bernie people young people said they wanted bernie to be president no one showed up no one showed up for fucking yang right andrew yang is what this country needed in my opinion and everybody was really excited about him and then he had nobody show up and that's because young people we bitch a lot and then do nothing and that's just been the the continued problem is that people don't want to put their money where their mouth is and so that they have their they have their mouth spoken for by other people who are very interested in preserving their interest Mm. You need to you need to run for office, dude. <laughs> You've got some really great ideas, and it's it's funny because I've been waiting to make this point, which to me is you know like this is this is probably the biggest point I think I'll make in this conversation because it's just something I, I've been thinking about for a very long time. I just think this is accurate, and my thought is 
the day we know we'll have made real social progress as it relates to these kinds of things that we've been talking about. And this conversation has been great. Like, Bill, thank you so much for, for agreeing. Thanks for having this. me. I've had just such a great time. Well, I can just see why you guys are such great friends. You're very similar people. You're very bright and thoughtful and well-read, not just accepting narratives that are being forced down your throat. But to me, we'll know what we, we will have made real progress when we just stop talking about it. I mean, one thing I hate, and this this may sound weird, but I think you'll both understand it instantly, is whenever I see something like the Women's Council of CPAs, I recall back when I graduated from college, which is a long time ago, there was uh, there was something called, I believe, the uh, American Society of African-American CPAs. And when I became aware of that, even back then, and again, this is what a while ago, I thought, what's the purpose of that? What are these people really trying to uh, achieve? Because it seems to me that we should just be all in the same group. Why do we want to split ourselves off? Because every time some organization rises up, they're just separating themselves from the mainstream or from the larger population of whatever that is. I don't yep. see, I don't understand. I mean, that's just, that's a form of isolationism. And yep. and I do understand that maybe there's there's certain situations and contexts in which that does make sense that I'm I'm just not thinking of it. Maybe where they just want, you know, their voices aren't being heard and they want to be recognized or things like that. And I'm not saying that there aren't situations where that's legitimate, but, you know, in in the more mainstream uh, manifestation of what I'm talking about, I don't see what purpose it serves. You're I mean, saying, yeah, you would like to see a world in which those things become obsolete because everybody feels so included. Well, whether they do or don't feel included, I think it's in their own best interest. Ah, I see what you're saying. To just assimilate, just assimilate. Stop saying I'm black or mm -hmm. I'm a woman. Just say I'm a human being and I'm here to participate in whatever this thing is that I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, this is Morgan Freeman's point. Is like he I likes. I know it he, is. Yeah, he makes that point a lot, where he's like, "I'm just a person. I'm a human. I'm Morgan Freeman. I happen to be black, but that's not how I think exactly. about myself in the world." And it's uh, it's what Brennan when you, when we were in the UK, you had noticed that like even the interactions with with uh, the, the black Scottish couple felt different because it, it even even in the subtext, it doesn't feel like blackness is at the forefront of people's minds whenever they're having a conversation with you. And that's one of the things that attracted me to French culture is, is that it's actually illegal to talk about race. And whenever Americans try to bring their own racial dynamics over here, it's really alien. And a lot of what we interpret as um, racism in um, France, because everyone will say, oh, France, France is very racist. No, it's it's a culturalist. They like French culture. And yeah, they truly think they have the best culture in the world and they do not mind telling you. <laughs> yeah. And and so and a lot of times, you know, you will think there's there's tons of reasons that people might not like you that don't have to do with your race. Right. And and that was a big thing for me was like I was like, oh, snap. Like I used to interpret every um, time somebody was being passive aggressive towards me or anything like that as that person being racist when they could just be a passive aggressive individual. And I completely think that you're right that the basically these isolation groups don't do well for the individual. My older sister wanted to go to Howard. And my dad didn't let her. And he said, because if you if you strive to surround yourself by just one type of people, you're setting yourself up for failure. 
And, and it's such a pivotal time in your life. And I think that's 100% true. And you're not going to find the, the people who are best suited for your life if you're strictly looking for just phenotypical indicators that this person's like a certain way. Now, here's the thing is I do think that we need to talk about not even not even so much like race in certain discussions, but like in the justice system. We I would rather if we even just talked about the role that complexion plays in trial like i'm i'm pro not having you be able to see the gender or race of the defendant while the trial is going on because the complexion of the person's skin has such a strong um, um, yeah cor- yeah correlation, correlation. with same with gender time. same yeah. with gender exactly and so i don't think you know with um with the amber geyer case i think we should not have been able to know her race or gender um and i think she would have got a vastly different sentence and the reason, and whenever I say that to people, sometimes people are like, I don't know, but if, if it was a black guy who randomly stumbled into a, 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 count, a white a young girl accountant's house and shot her dad twice, that dude would probably in Texas be getting the chair. And the, and the, I think that the fact of the matter is if we don't know those things, we can be more objective. And we understand that like, yeah, like we are evolved in most places, but the places that were most tribalistic is the judicial system. And so why not just keep those from the discussion because we know that these have a propensity for unfairness. And I would rather it not even be about skin tone because a dark Mexican guy gets screwed over the same as a, uh, and that Mexican guy might even be black, but like he may be considered Hispanic. There's like, there's no consistency, right? There are black people who look white and, and there's also all these things in between. So I think if we just come up with a more objective way to solve our problems and label our problems as they are, I think we're going to be a lot better at finding good solutions. Unfortunately, the problem we have, I think, comes down to the intellectual laziness of most human beings. And yes. that no monop- no race has a monopoly on that. Nope. <laughs> nope. And so for <laughs> us, to, <laughs> that's so funny. Uncle. <laughs> it's true. I live for conversations like this. Like this is just what I get off on. I, I love talking about issues that matter with smart people. And I love it when people have different views, as long as they're, you know, they're rooted in some level of intellectual depth. But how often do we have these conversations during our normal lives? You know, yeah, I mean, very, maybe very, you guys, very, maybe you very guys seldom. Do it. Yeah, I don't do it a lot because most of the conversations I have, I have in the form of a written exchange with somebody on Facebook where they're saying, oh, why don't you go fuck yourself? You fucking you're like Hitler, dude. You're mm-hmm. like you're you're totally Hitler. Yeah. Oh, I am Hitler. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like to me, I feel like Facebook was a missed opportunity at like us having the forum, right, where people get up and they they say things, you know, um, and they they take their time to to make a rational discussion, even when someone disagrees with them. I recently um, I had someone write on my thing because I had said that, you know, minorities need to stop talking about Western civilization as if they're not a part of it. And then this guy wrote and he's a liberal, but he was like, well, to be honest, like just speaking about black people and this guy was from his family's from Siberia and from college. He said, you know, you're, you're, you, you know, black people weren't a part of Western civilization up until like the 1960s. They didn't contribute any national works. And, you know, it's a, with great injustice and everything like that. I said, well, actually, um, I can trace back that literally everyone like up, up five generations that I have um, people who've served this country and fought for this country and fought wars. So we're, 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 we've been here, we're part of it. You know, um, we honestly, we're kind of more of a part of it than even your family. Your family got here in like the 19th If you want to play that card, you're not a part of Western civilization. You're part of si- si- Siberia, but I don't believe in that narrative. 
I don't believe in a narrative of sectioning off our history and only only allowing some people to get credit for the achievements of the past because they look a certain way. Because if we want to get really objective about it, then there's a lot of immigrants who come here that are white that haven't contributed. They haven't contributed, so they shouldn't be able to take part of the American experience. But that's not the reality I want. I want if you're an American, you're American all the way. And exactly. And, and, you know, he didn't respond to it, but I, and at first I felt triggered, I wanted to lash out, but I think it's really important to fight that trigger and understand why you're feeling the way that you do. And sometimes it comes from frustration. One of the things I've said that I think the reason why that there's a high propensity for violence amongst young black men is they're very frustrated and a lot of times don't have the vocabulary to basically explain their frustrations. A lot of these kids, you know, in inner city Detroit have very weird experiences with their parents and things like that that are very frustrating. And if you don't have a robust vocabulary, it is very hard to basically verbalize the contradictions of emotions that you feel. And I don't think we'd mm. spend enough time focusing on the nuances like that whenever we label something as simply like a black issue or a white issue or whatever, when it's like, let's arm each other with the vocabulary to communicate the nuance of emotion that we feel so that we can have better discourse. And I think that our discourse is getting worse because we tend as a nation, especially Americans, and this is the biggest difference between Americans and the English, is we speak in hyperbole a lot. All the time. And yeah. all the time. And even, even all the time is hyperbole. And and what it does is it prevents us from being able to really, it's the age of spin where we really can't sit down and have a good conversation on the facts because everybody is Hitler, right? You are the yeah, worst version of everything. This was an amazing conversation. I had such yeah, we'll a have to have you back, Bill. Yeah, Dude, in fact, thank you so much for having me. And I can't wait to come to Michigan and uh, meet your Uncle Mike. That would be awesome. And uh, enjoy the rest of your experience over there in France. And definitely, we're going to have you back on this. It was great. In fact, I may replace Brendan with you shortly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thank you, William. Awesome. Right. Thank you guys so much. Bye. Thanks, everyone, Bye. for listening. Have a great day.